Tonight and each night we offer, we give to you guys our sermon notes, kind of the outlines for whoever's communicating up front, what they're trying to get across. And my hope is that tonight that you will take notes as we open God's word and as we share some ideas that you would take some notes. There you've got a key verse. If you're into scripture memorization or you want to try something new, you've never memorized God's word before. Each Wednesday, we're going to give you a verse that we want you to spend the week memorizing. And so your, your verse for this week is 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. There we wrote it for you. Keep your notes, memorize it. If you do, I'll buy you coffee. Seriously, I'll buy you coffee. Um, I may make the coffee that I buy and crunch it up. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, so hey, and then you can follow along and read some of the notes. Here's the big idea tonight. Here's the big idea. So if you're a snoozer or if you have trouble focusing or you don't know why you're here, just don't, don't miss this. You can either be a slave to your sexuality or glorify God with your sexuality. You can either be a slave to your sexuality or you can glorify God with your sexuality. Tonight, as we continue our series in Tough Stuff, what we are talking about tonight is a question that some of you asked and you said, why is sex such a big deal? There were a number of you writing something to that effect, like, why is sex such a big deal? Why, why, why does the church even talk about it? And so tonight, what I hope to do, tonight, what I hope to do is I hope to answer four questions. And I'm going to give you the questions up front. And if you're, if, if you're really trying to grow in your faith, okay, if you're trying to take this Jesus thing seriously, you've got to show up on Wednesday nights with a pen and with your Bible, and we got the notes for you. But I want to start seeing more and more people showing up with their Bibles and with a pen so that you can take notes. Because if you want to really grow in your faith, it's going to take you being really active. You can't be passive about this. You've got to be active about this. And so I want you to fill it out. So here's, here, here's the four questions that we're going to answer and then we're going to jump in. Question number one is this. Why is sex such a big deal? Question number two is this. Why can't I just do whatever I want? Question number three. How do I reflect God with my sexuality now? Seeing that none of you are married. How do I reflect God with my sexuality now? And then lastly, can I live a fulfilling life without ever having sex? So those are the four big questions that we're going after. But let me open up with two stories. There was a student in a youth group that I led uh, two youth groups before this. It was in San Diego. And I've told some of you this story before, but his name was Justice. And man, I love Justice. And he's a kid that just had a lot of passion and a lot of energy I remember one time Justice and I were sitting down together and Justice was telling me a little bit about his life and man, him and his mom's relationship was just so jacked up. He got in fights at school and didn't really connect with people and he didn't have a lot of friends and he struggled with depression and, and he cut himself a little bit. And man, he just felt so disconnected from people. And then I asked him about him and his girlfriend. He started telling me about, yeah, they've been sleeping together, but that's nothing new for him. He's been sleeping with every girlfriend that he's ever had. And, and sometimes he cheats on his girlfriend and sleeps with somebody else. And I asked him, I just said, Justice, I got to ask you a question, man. Like, why are you sleeping around so much? Really? Not just because it feels good or because you think it's cool to do. Like, honestly, I want, I want you to tell me why. Like, why do you think you are constantly sleeping around with different people? And I'll never forget his answer. That's what he told me. He said, he said, Eric, this was a 17-year-old boy, young man. He said, for those few minutes, for those few minutes, I feel like I'm worth something. For those few minutes that I'm sharing this experience with this person, I feel like I'm needed. I feel like I'm valued. You see, for him, what he had grown to understand is that his value and his worth 
came from these sexual experiences. And so each sexual experience was even deeper than just being about his own pleasure and his own desires, that he was actually on a journey. He was on a journey to discover who he really was. And you guys, sometimes living in the world that we live in and the culture, the message that's going out is that we can find ourselves searching for our identity in our sexuality and in our sexual experiences. And so we think, man, the way that boy reacts to me when we have sex together or when we are sexually active, man, that's how I know I'm worth something. Oh, man, tonight. Tonight, I got something to share with you that my hope is that that lie dies tonight. My hope is that the lie dies tonight that you are worth something because of how you perform sexually or because of what sexual relationships you'll have. My hope is that tonight you discover that you are actually worth far more than that. I also hope to redeem your view of sexuality. Maybe some of you tonight, you come into this place and and you've been told, maybe through subliminal Christian messages or whatever, that sex is bad or that God hates sex or that you shouldn't shouldn't have a desire for it someday, that, that man, that's all evil. And man, I, I, I hope tonight, and maybe some of you have had some really negative experiences with sex. Maybe somebody has taken advantage of you, and, and so your view of sex is just so warped, and I get that. And I'm, I'm so sorry for that. But tonight, I hope to do a little work on what is a theology of sex? What should be, as, as followers of Jesus, how does God want us to think about sex? And so let's just jump in to question number one is this, why is sex such a big deal? And I'm going to give you a quick answer, and then we're going to jump into scripture and dive into it. And so if you're taking notes, here we go. Why is sex such a big deal? Here's why. Because God spoke it into existence after speaking us into existence. That God spoke sex into existence after he spoke us into existence. Find me in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God comes up with this idea in his creation story, in the beginning of the world, the story that he's telling that always begins with him and you and I have been invited into his story. This is kind of big right here. The purpose of your life is, is not to figure out like what your story is. The purpose of your life is to figure out what God's story is and to live into that. That everything you do, everything you think, every way that you interact would be a reflection of the big story that God is telling and the one that began in creation. And so God comes up with this idea, man, I'm stepping all over. God came up with this idea to create humans. And so he says, I'm gonna create them in our image. This is really, really key. Because what God is saying here is that before they ever do anything, before they ever experience anything, before they ever have a sexual encounter, before they ever make money, before they ever get a job, before they ever achieve, before they ever succeed, before they do absolutely anything at all, I will make them in my image. That means that you are created to reflect God with every part of who you are. I've talked about that a lot. Let's keep going. Verse 27, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. So God creates the world and he he puts out humans. He puts out people to be little reflections of him. 
That did you know that you have, that each one of you in this room, you have intrinsic worth. It means it's worth that was given to you, not worth that you earned. So when you come out as a baby, when you come out as a baby, and all you're doing is pooping in your parents' hands and peeing and crying. This is like my life right now. And crying and keeping Sarah and I up to the wee hours of the morning, little Lila Bean. Like, the reality is God has put his image on her and he's put his image on each one of you. And this means that your worth and your value goes deeper than anything you will ever do. Who you are as a person is not primarily rooted in what you do, in what school you go to, in what grades you get, in who you sleep with and how successful you are. It's none of that. That right now, no matter what you've gone through up to this point, your identity, who you really are, at its very base foundational level, is that you are someone who bears the image of God Almighty. Some of you play sports and, and you got that jersey on, right? A jersey tells you what team you play for. It tells you what sport you're playing. It tells you what side you're on. See, when, when God put his image inside of us, what he did is he gave us a jersey. And he said, now live your life in response to the jersey that you're wearing. And then this happens. Maybe some of you go, man, God hates sex. God has never said the word. I can't believe like he, you know, I, he doesn't want anything to do with it and, and you're terrified of it. Check out what happens next. This is, this is wild. Nobody ever taught me this um, growing up, but this is the, the, the very first words God says to humans. We're gonna, we're gonna literally read it. So God creates humans and he creates them and he's just staring at them, right? Like Chris and I are just staring at each other right now. And it's the very first thing that God is ever gonna say to people like, Hi, like what do you say, right? Like God has created people and he's looking at them and the very first words out of his mouth are this. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the crown. God, his very first words to them are be fruitful and increase in number. How do you do that? Sex. <laughs> There's just no other way around it. There's just no other way around it. Now here's the thing, here's the thing, here's the thing. I, I hope this affects some of your view of sex. That God could have, God could have created us in such a way where sex was not enjoyable. God could have created us as asexual beings. He could have used like mitosis and all of a sudden we're just like, and we're just there, right? But God didn't decide to do that. God, God created sex. Like this was his idea. Adam didn't invent it and go, God, this is really cool. Are you cool with it? No. The first words God says to Adam is, I created sex. It's his first words. He says, be fruitful and increase. And then he says, as you're being fruitful and as you're increasing, I want you to rule over the fish. I want you to take care of this place that I've created you, that I've created you for. He says, I want you to increase and I want you to do something with your life. But this is so important. 
That comes after, after they know who they are. See, sex is not a means to understand who you are. It's a means to glorify God. This might be kind of mind-blowing for a second. That sex might actually be a way to worship God. It might be a way to bring glory to God. But problem, the problem is, we use sex as a means to feel validated, to feel worth something. Because we believe that our identity and our worth and our value comes from it. But biblically, from the very beginning, God created sex and he was proud of it. He was excited about it. But he didn't create it so that we would chase it and find our identity and worth there. He created it so that it would be one way that we reflect his glory. You see, your identity is not in your sexuality, but in your existence as an image bearer. Your invitation to be sexual comes after your invitation to bear his image. Does that make sense? So God says, yeah, yeah, I, I've created sex. I know exactly what it is. But the way I want to design it is in such a way that you experience it as I intended it to be experienced, not as a way in which you feel better about yourself or, or you feel like you're worth something or you're valuable. No, 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 but it is, a, it is an avenue. It is a way, when done my way, to bring glory to God. So does God think sex is gross? Absolutely not. But he created it. I want to jump to... Uh, to question, uh, or, or I want to jump to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 are really interesting because they're kind of telling the same story but from different angles. You know how when you watch a movie, you'll see a scene, but you rarely see that scene from one angle. You see it from multiple angles. That's kind of what Genesis 1 and 2 is. is they're telling a similar story but from different angles. So find me in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. I will make a helper suitable for him. These two words are really, really significant. The Hebrew word, which is what the Old Testament was written in, the Hebrew word for helper is azer. Can everyone say azer on three? One, two, three. Azer. And here's what azer means. It means that it is someone who is neither superior nor subordinate. So this idea of God creating a helper, maybe some of you have read this before and you're going, oh, oh, this means that a woman's sole job is to like be a servant to guys. No, 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 that's not what the Bible's telling. And some guys use and abuse that and that's wrong. But, but you, you may look at that and you may read that and go, oh man, so that, that means a woman's sole purpose is to, is, is to be, to play this, this subordinate, this, this, this role of, of where kind of they, they only do whatever the guy needs. That's not what this is talking about here. That this word in its original language has to do with the, that there is neither subordinate nor superior. And in fact, God in the Old Testament, this word azer is used to describe God's relationship with humans. So God is described in scripture as being a helper. So the text says that God wanted to create a helper that was suitable 
The word for, the word for suitable in the Hebrew is negdo. Can everyone say negdo on three? One, two, three. Negdo. And here's what it means. To be suitable means to be opposite. It means to match. It means to complement. So what God's saying here is, is we need to create a helper who is neither subordinate nor superior, who is also an opposite, who's a match. So this is what happens. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. He's like, Blue Jay, Black Hawk, Seagull. I right? like, he's just kind of naming, naming birds, doing this thing, whatever. But for Adam, no suitable helper, no negdo azar was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took out of the man's ribs, as maybe what some of your texts say. In the Hebrew, it's, it's better translated out of his side. Because we'll see later, he's talking about bone and flesh, not just bone, is what Adam will say in a second. So it says, the Lord God caused the man to fall asleep into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took out of the man's side and then closed up the place with the flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the side of the man that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. This is really significant, too. God didn't necessarily use the dust or his feet to create the woman, as if the woman is under him. He didn't use the head of Adam as, as if she was over him. But God, God takes out of the side of Adam to create this suitable helper, to create this complement, to create this match. And Adam, guys, Adam has never seen a woman before in his life. Watch what happens. The Bible is so interesting. You should read it. He had taken out of the man and he brought it to the man. Then verse 23, the man said, so all of a sudden Adam wakes up and here is this woman. He's never seen a woman before in his life. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man. <laughs> right? He looks and goes, whoa, man. For she was taken out of man. For this reason, this is significant. This is significant for a theology of sex. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. This is God's picture of sexuality. Is a man and a woman who are in a suitable helper relationship who understand that their identity is not in their sexuality, but their identity is in the fact that they are made in the image of God, that nobody can take that away from you. And then within the marriage relationship, they are invited to truly be one. To truly be one. Question number two is this, and we're just gonna continue. Why can't I just do what I want? So why, why is sex such a big deal? Because God spoke it into existence. Because sex was God's idea, it was not ours. But that he gave us this gift 
after creating us in his image so that the way in which we act sexually would actually be a reflection of him, not a means to figure out who we are, but we would already know who we are. And so then the second question maybe some of you have been asking is, well, why can't I just do whatever I want? Like, honestly, why, why can't I, if I want to sleep with her, if we want to hook up, if we want to do whatever, why, why can't I? Why, why is it such a big deal? And here's the answer. If you miss its purpose, you will think it's your purpose. If you miss the purpose of sex, you will think that sex is your purpose. And this is huge. Do you guys realize that there are industries making billions of dollars selling you and me a lie that our purpose is who we sleep with and how many people we sleep with and how far we go? There are industries making billions of dollars selling us this lie. So why, why can't you just do whatever you want with anybody? Because if you miss the purpose of sex, you'll start to think sex is your purpose. Find me in Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 says this. For this reason... Paul, writing Ephesians, quotes Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Verse 32, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. See, Paul says, man, this, this, this idea that a man will leave his family, be united to his wife, and they will become one what Paul's saying here is that sex is actually pointing to something even bigger than itself. That, that sex is so much bigger than just a feeling that you get. Or even that false sense of identity and worth and value. That sex is actually a metaphor. It's actually a metaphor for the divine union that you and me have with God. It's, it's a metaphor. It's not the same but it's a metaphor, it's a picture. Because when two people, when a husband and wife love each other and they commit to each other, that sex is so much bigger than just that feeling or that moment. It's about actually being one with each other and connecting at such a deep level. But ultimately, sex, even within marriage, points to something bigger than itself. I've talked about this before, and I love bringing this up like on Sarah and I's anniversaries or like when we're on a hot date night. I love bringing up the fact that Sarah and I won't be married forever. <laughs> she loves when I talk about that. She thinks that's so romantic and cute. Here's the thing. Biblically, biblically, for those of you in this room that will get married, you will not be married forever. You will be married, hopefully, until you die or until your spouse dies and then when you enter into eternity, when you spend the eternity with Jesus, the scriptures tell us, Jesus tells us that we actually won't be married. And so sex even has a bigger purpose than just that moment, that feeling. It, it, it's describing a oneness. It's describing a oneness that God desires to have with each one of us. And, and sex, the kind, the kind that maybe you see on TV or in shows or movies or whatever, is nothing like, and I'll talk privately with you guys about this later, but it is nothing like what real sex is like. 
And the kind of sex that I think the scriptures invite us to think about, we can find in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 and 4. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 to 4. Now, here's what you need to understand. Here's what you need to understand about the context of the first century where Paul was writing this letter. Sex was viewed as something that men could do with anybody they wanted except another person's wife. So, and I know this is just going to sound kind of crazy, but it was viewed in this day and age under the Roman Greco world that grown people could have sex with kids. That, that men could have sex with slaves anytime they wanted, wherever they wanted. And so women back in this day, women were viewed as property. Women were viewed as objects, as means to an end. And so if a guy wanted to have sex with a woman, as long as she wasn't married, he was allowed to do that culturally, culturally. And in that day and age, women didn't have any rights. Women didn't have any voice. Women couldn't push back against that at all. But do you remember that idea of the suitable helper, this compliment, this match from the side? What Paul is about to tell us is so revolutionary People would have, their jaws would have dropped. Their minds would have been, I mean, this would have changed everything for them. Because how he describes sex. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So, so they kind of went to the other extreme. They said, okay, now that we're following Jesus, like, we're just not going to have sex at all, right? Because sex is bad. And, and Paul goes, oh, you, you've missed it. You missed it. Verse 2, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. This is so profound. Check this out. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife, this is so huge, the wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. Everyone when they heard that in the first century would have been like, yeah, duh, we already know that. Yeah, yeah, wife's body just belongs to her husband. Husband can do whatever he wants. The, the, wife's, the wife's body just kind of belongs to her husband. But then he deepens the theology, goes all the way back to Genesis when he says this. In the same way, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. This is profound. See, what it's saying here about sex is, that sex is best when a husband and wife yield their bodies to one another and say, my job is to serve you and, and your job is to serve me. And our goal is to outserve one another. Our goal is not to say, how much can I get from this? But rather, how much can I give to this? That that's a true theology of sex is not how much can I get from this, but in the context of marriage, how much can I give to this. You see, that's a biblical view of sex. Third question, how do I reflect God with my sexuality now? How do I reflect God with my sexuality now? The answer is this, by honoring God first and always. By honoring God first and always. Find me in 1 Corinthians 6, it's actually just a few verses up, 19 to 20, it says this, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? So where does the Holy Spirit live? With a little more confidence. Where does the Holy Spirit live? In you. In you. 
that if you are in Christ, if you are following Jesus, if you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Scripture says that the Holy Spirit actually lives inside of you. That's crazy. So not only are you an image bearer of God, not only were you designed to reflect him, but now God has actually put his spirit inside of you. You are more valuable than anyone could ever say you are. You are more valuable than that boy or that girl could ever affirm. You're more valuable than that job, than that promotion, than that salary, than those grades. You're more valuable than what your roommates think about you. You're more valuable than what your friends think about you. You're way more valuable because you are made in the image of God. And if you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. It's like this precious commodity. And so in light of that, the scriptures tell us that you received this from God. You are not your own, but you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. A good theology says this. You didn't create you. God created you. You never belonged to yourself. You originally belonged to God because he created you. And then you were enslaved by sin and you belonged to sin. And then you were bought back by God and you belong to God. See, as people, we think we're on our own. We think we're autonomous. No, no, no. None of us ever belong to ourselves. That we originally belonged to God. Then we belonged to sin and now we belong to God again. And since we belong to God again, I can't go looking at porn because the Holy Spirit is in me. And because I've got to honor him with my body. I, I can't sleep with another guy because that's not what God created me for. My purpose is not in sex. That there may come a day in your life where, where as you get married that you get to experience that oneness. But, but right now you're called to honor God with your sexuality. That you're called to put God first above your needs, above your desires. And last question is this, can I live a fulfilling life without ever having sex? We're in 1 Corinthians 7 again, verse eight, one verse, it says this, now to the unmarried and the widows I say to you, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Can you live a fulfilled life, an abundant life, a joyful life without ever getting married, without ever having sex? Absolutely, two case studies, Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul. Jesus Christ was never married and he never had sex. The Apostle Paul was never married and never had sex. Both of them changed the world. One of them brought the salvation of God and the other one carried that message to the Gentiles. You see, you could have an incredibly impactful, incredibly meaningful life apart from sex. So my hope as we wrap up and as we just pray and as we jump into small groups for the next 40 minutes is that you would wrestle with some of these questions. That you would recognize that your identity does not come from your sexuality, but your sexuality was created to be one of the ways you glorify God. So what I want you to do is I, I want to invite you in your small groups to be really vulnerable and to be really real with each other. And let's see if we can change a little bit of our culture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.